That's really key, I think, is observation in a long-form piece is, mm. you know, what's someone wearing, what cufflinks have they got on, mm. what, what, what's, how do they raise their eyebrows, do they look nervous, what kind mm. of shoes do they have. It's, it's really important to get that kind of texture and colour from your own eyes as well as from So it's, it's, it's as much about that as it is about what they say. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Hour. My name's Adam Burnett. I'm your host. I'm here with our producer, Sam Ferris. Sammy, hello. Hello, Adam. Episode two, very exciting. Crash was great, but I reckon this one might even be better. Oh, I love your enthusiasm. I was, um, as a long form fan, writing and reading, I, um, I must say I took particular delight in this one. We've got Katrina Strickland, the Good Weekend editor on deck this week and she provided us with some brilliant insights into the craft of long form writing the editing the work that goes into it which i I know particularly uh took you a bit by surprise sam it was the number one thing that i took away from this chat was just the work that goes into the features and the good weekend and it's not like these things are done in a week sometimes they take weeks sometimes they take months the uh the writers they're brilliant they interview dozens of people they fact check they do their research they even go into about how the photographers go around and get the fantastic images that go along with these pieces it's a real production and i'm not sure that the average reader truly comprehends or understands what goes into it so katrina does a fantastic job of taking us into that world uh about how the writers go about it and how these pieces get printed and then into the newspapers I agree, Sam. I think Katrina conveyed it really well, what goes into the whole process. We talked to her not only about the process itself, but her own background in in the world of journalism. She was very kind enough to take us back all the way to where it started for her, which was actually as a paper girl, paper delivery girl back in the day. And um, yeah, she certainly climbed the ranks in, in the intervening years. And we dove into two stories uh, from the good weekend over the past 18 months or so that um, Katrina picked out, uh, one by Jane Cadzo on Peter Volandis, the ARLC chairman, whose name really hasn't been out of the papers uh, in the last few months. But this was when he was just announced in, in that chairman's role and still uh, and still really making his mark as the Racing New South Wales chairman as well. It's a masterful profile from, from Jane, who has been uh, in the industry for a long time herself. And I took away plenty of lessons from it. And the other piece we talk about it was written by Tim Elliott, um, and it was a very different piece. Katrina described it as Australia writ large. It was a, uh, a slightly ridiculous but beautifully portrayed piece about a uh, lawn bowls bust up in Queensland that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Again, it was expertly written. I mean, these good weekend writers, they're really at the top of their profession, and um, that's reflected in, in these beautiful pieces, which Katrina talks us through so expertly as well. You can find both of these pieces on our Twitter page at The Writer's Hour for you to enjoy. Yep. And while you're there, why not rate, review and subscribe to The Writer's Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, pretty much wherever you get your podcast from. That's it from us. Here's Katrina Strickland. Hey, Katrina, how are you? Good. How are you, Adam? Very well. Thank you for coming on the show. It's great to have you on. Pleasure. Now, um, first things first, I thought we would start on this Friday afternoon with um, you giving us a little bit of detail about your journalism background and, um, yeah, we can get get into it from there, hey? Okay. Well, my first connection with newspapers was as a paper girl, actually, delivering the progress <laughs> press around the streets that I lived in in um, Melbourne. Sad to see this week that Progress Press is one of the News Corp newspapers 
going to die mm-hmm. in a print format. Um, yeah, and then anyway, I went to university, did arts law, which a lot of journalists did, um, went and worked in a law firm for one year and thought, no, this is not what I want to do. And I'd always loved writing and I'd always loved the idea of being a journalist. Um, so I kind of wangled my way into a cadetship at the Herald Sun in the business section, which was funny because it was probably the one section of any newspaper that I never read was the business section as a kind of young 20-something. But um, it was really great training there to, um, you know, get get across business because business is so much a part of, of life, you know, so many stories. You kind of follow the money and you find the story, even if the story is not related directly to the money. Um, and then, I yeah, so I was at the Herald Sun. I moved to the Australian where I worked for 11 years and um, started off in the business section doing the marketing and media round and then I moved I wanted a change to, to kind of get out of the business section moved into the arts um, section ended up being arts editor at the Oz moved to the Finn to be arts editor financial review worked there for a little bit as that was another 11 years actually and I moved on to the AFR magazine which is a monthly glossy and then moved on to Good Weekend really three years ago this June Okay, terrific. Well, um, was that a bit too long-winded? No, that was great. I, I was curious about um, the move from business to arts. Is it as dramatic as it sounds? It sounds like uh, from black to white. Yeah, although interestingly, what I found when I was doing the arts is I was doing arts news and, you know, a lot of the arts sector is subsidised. So there's mm. kind of the government and the money and, that the, you know, there's often money troubles and sponsorship, philanthropy, ticket sales and all of that. So actually that business training was quite useful in some respects in the arts because if you're writing about news and to do with arts organisations and that kind of thing, particularly when I went to the financial review um, and then I was writing about, you know, the art auction market and the sale of various collectibles. So, yeah, in a roundabout way, no. I can imagine um, a a grounding in business, um, would come in handy in, in many walks of walks of life and, and also in the journalism world. I mean, you know, before you said follow the money, I, so many things come back to the money, don't they? No matter what we're talking about. So have you found it handy in, in different elements of, of work life and, and even your personal life in some ways, I guess? Oh, definitely. I mean, I would say to any young journalist that they really should try and do a stint in state or federal politics which I didn't do, which I really wish I had, and trying to do a stint on the business desk because those two areas are so core. And even if you end up going and doing something completely different, just a grounding in knowing how, how you know, corporate Australia and small business works and how politics and government work is, is really invaluable, I'd say. Absolutely. I read um, somewhere along the line that, you, uh, you have a bit of a passion for long-form writing. Um, now, that's, that's a shared passion, I can tell you. And uh, it also strikes me when you took this, this must have been a dream job for you, this um, Good Weekend, if that is the case. I grew up in Melbourne and I read Good Weekend from when I was a teenager mm-hmm. and it was always one of my favourite magazines. And actually, I was thinking, knowing that you're going to ask that, why is it that I love long-form journalism? And I think it's because it's the writing and the story combined to, to pull someone through a 5,000 word story, you really have to, it's a craft and to, to, you have to write it in such a way that there's structure and there's ebb and flow and that you're combining, you know, all the facts with 
analysis and observation and humour and you just don't get all of those things together in, you know, a, a, a short news story because you don't have the room. So I think it is the writing and the storytelling. There's an arc to the story and, you know, there are plenty of four or 5,000 word stories, hopefully not in my magazine, where you just, you just stop after the first, you know, 500 or 800 words because they haven't, they're not good at the craft of long form journalism and they're not pulling the reader through. And the, the beauty of a well-written piece by a, a master of the form is that, you know, you don't even feel like you're mm. wading through 5,000 words. Mm. It's a pleasure to, you know, it's like, it's like a, the same with a book, right? Like yeah. if, if a book is well-written, you don't feel like it's long. You just, you just make your way through it with pleasure. And I think it's the same short, thing. There's a, <laughs> that's right. There's a real craft. I think that's it. I love the craft of long-form journalism and the people who do it. Yeah, well, speaking of, I mean, you've got a um, pretty impressive stable of writers there. Have you enjoyed, um, you said it's come, it's around three years now that you've been in, in the job. Has, has that been a, a fun element of it, working with these guys? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of my favourite parts of the job is I think of them as they're kind of like elite racehorses in a way. You know, they've all got their own peculiarities and strengths and weaknesses and and you play to them, but they all, you know, even if they're agonizing over a story and you talk about it and work through it, more or less what they end up turning in is, you know, we're such high standard. And that's, mm. I think, compared to, you know, the, the other end of the spectrum is you can get pieces from perhaps other people who aren't as good at that form and you, you have to try and restructure it and you have to try and go back to them with a million different questions. And I mean, our writers, of course, there's still editing that goes on and questions that come back and forth, but it's, it's already at, at a certain high level and you're trying to get it higher. Whereas people who aren't as good as them, you know, you're starting from a, a much lower point and you're just wanting to get it up to, you know, plausible in a way. Yeah. <laughs> but if they don't know how to do this kind of piece as mm. well as our writers do. So how did um, how do you start out, Katrina? I mean, is it is it softly, softly at first when you started and, and you had all these excellent writers? Because writers can be can be a funny bunch, us writers, and um, <laughs> we're, everyone's as you said, you know, we've all got our own eccentricities and our pride, and and yeah, how, how do you uh, begin to to position yourself as as editor of the Good Weekend? Yeah, it is a trust thing. I think you you know they they're all you know as we said top of their field, so they get a new editor, they kind of want to make sure that you're not an idiot and that you're not going to send them on stories that they think are ridiculous or have, you know, so they get to know you, you get to know them really just through working together and working on stories, but also talking about, you know, your vision for the magazine and what we want to do more of and what we want to do less of. And, um, yeah, it's really just conversation, you know, like there's a lot of conversation individually with writers and also as a group. There's a couple of stories we'll chat about today that I think um, you've provided me with as, as what seemed to me at least like good examples of, of the vision you've had for the magazine. They're, they're quite different, but they're really interesting stories um, in their own rights and they're both terrifically written. We'll get stuck into them soon, but um, just for young writers coming through and what they can expect in a in a magazine, you know, the magazine world, I guess there are few and few titles and far between these days, but you know, how would it work? I mean, if, if uh, you wanted to send a net, uh, send a writer off on a story, 
is it generally a story that they've come up with that they've pitched to you or is it a story that you've you've um, come across and you want to pick out that writer and how do you pick that writer which one do you choose you know all of these things uh, can you talk me through the nuts and bolts of it a little bit Katrina yeah I mean it's a really a bit of both I mean the writers mm-hmm. come up with their own ideas and myself and deputy editor Anne Highland we also come up with a lot of ideas and it's really just a, a mixture like we'll often say like Peter Volandis was Anne Highland's idea mm-hmm. she been watching him and talking to people and said, look, he's, he's really, you know, becoming quite a power player in Australian sport, particularly in New South Wales. We should do him. Nambour Bowls, which is the piece we're going to talk about by Tim, Tim Elliott, that was his idea. He'd read a little clipping about this court case in a, in a regional paper, I think, and thought, oh, look, there's a story there. So, yeah, it really is a, it really is a mixture. And sometimes, like, we'll come up with an idea that, you know, you'll talk to one writer about it and they might not really get it. Like Blandy's was a good idea, actually. The first writer that we talked to about that just wasn't really his thing and he couldn't really see why this guy was, and he wasn't the household name that he is now when mm. we started doing that yeah. story. He couldn't quite see it. And then when we mentioned it to Jane Cadzo, she got it instantly because that's, you know, that's her kind of sweet spot, I guess, is that mixture you know that intersection of sport and politics and and kind of society she's really great at those kind of pieces so so sometimes the story picks the writer like Anne and I work very closely together and you know if we're talking about story ideas nine times out of ten we'll have the same writer in mind Mm -hmm. as to who will be best at this or that story so you kind of just get a very sixth sense of what um you know, what, what the various writers are good at and, and what kind of stories will suit them. And I don't know if this is too vague of a question. Uh, it might be a bit of an intangible. Well, what kind of stories are you looking for at Good Weekend? Trying to really encapsulate, okay, what is Good Weekend? And we said it's the definitive stories on the people, places and issues that matter to Australians. So, yeah, so the people really is profiles of people who are making a difference. They might be very high profile well-known people or they might be not well-known at all and that's the point that they're doing something amazing you know outside of the spotlight and the issues are really I know no one stands around a water cooler anymore but they're water cooler issues you know the ones that everyone we've done stories on school bullies and the anti-vaxxer movement and long distance love and you know the, those kind of ones where they're issues that maybe you'd be talking to with your friends at a dinner party or over coffee or that, that you maybe half, half consciously thought about but hadn't really pulled to the front of your head, that we kind of want to be at that stage before you've really pulled it to the front of your head and then you see it in the magazine and you go, oh, yeah, I've been wondering about that or, wow, they've managed to kind of pull all that together in a way that I just hadn't in my own mind. So, yeah, it's really, and, then, and then what we like to say that we do, which I think we do, but our aim is that we will be the definitive story on that. So if it's a piece on Peter Vlandis, then it's the definitive piece that when people talk about him, they'll go back to. If it's a piece on the anti-vaxxer movement, then it's, you know, it's the piece that people will refer to that really brought it to a head and summarised and kind of understates what it does, but, you know, really kind mm. of crystallised what it is and why it matters and why we're interested in it. I dare say Tim Elliott's written the definitive lawn bowl bust up piece. <laughs> and, and that's right. And um, Jane, I mean, 
uh, Jane Cadzo, who wrote about Peter Volandis, like you mentioned, um, I thought that was a brilliant profile. And I dare say there would have been quite a few journalists this year flicking back through that one um, for, for tidbits and pieces of information um, that have helped many a profile since. But yeah, I'm not sure any have touched um, hers. That, that was a tremendous piece. We might have a quick look at it now. Uh, actually, we might have a substantial look at it. I thought we could talk about it um, in depth, actually. So it, it's a profile, as you said, of Peter Volandis. It's from last October. So as you said, he's become a household name now. He wasn't then. It was a very good idea from your deputy editor. That focuses mainly upon Volandis' impact on the horse racing industry in Australia and the rivalry he's really agitated between um, Racing New South Wales and Racing Victoria. So, I, I mean, you mentioned um, the way this, this story came about. I'll, I'll jump into uh, the headline. We'll start, we'll start right at the top, which is obvious place to start. Um, Sydney power broker Peter Volandis has Melbourne's spring racing crown in his sights. I mean, it's a simple headline. Um, you guys are opting for long descriptive headlines. Can you explain to, to our listeners what, why you go for headlines like that, Katrina? Yeah, I mean, that's the online headline, which is different to the print headline. The print okay. headlines tend to be shorter. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly what the print headline on that story is. But, yeah, it's all to do with searchability and mm-hmm. um, traffic, really, the headline on an online story. So I'd say that's longer probably to get his name in it, and horse mm-hmm. racing in it and a few other things that will make people want to click on it and read it. Um, but for us, it's all because we are inserted into the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, it's always really important for us not to be Sydney centric or Melbourne centric. Mm-hmm. So this story was, you know, one of the reasons why we really wanted to do him was that he was taking on Melbourne spring racing in such an audacious way. Mm. And Melbourne had always had such a dominance, you know, with the Melbourne cup and Derby day and all those kind of races. And here was this brash Sydney guy, you know, kind of, yeah, it's perfect, yeah. isn't it? It really it was, you know, yeah. He so 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 it was perfect because it was a Sydney, it was the quintessentially Sydney story, mm. and yet it it had just as much relevance to Melbourne because Melburnians were looking at him, going, "Who is this?" I think Spiv as Jane <laughs> yeah, called him, yeah. you know. Um, and he was also, I think, the other thing that made him a really great subject, apart from, I guess, the power play and the fact that he was taking on Melbourne was that he's a very complex person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some people call him a bully. He certainly mm. had power. People do what he wants. Mm. But as Jane found, he was actually very likable and very results oriented. Mm. And so he's not black or white. You know, he's not a goodie or a baddie. He's a combination. And, you know, they're the best kind of people to profile because you've got such texture to what you're writing. You're not just you're yeah. not just doing a hatchet job and you're not just doing a puff piece. You know, you're really trying to nut out who they are. She went so many places with him and, and she did it so effectively. I think, like you said earlier, you kind of breeze through this piece, even though I think it's um, yeah, five and a half thousand words. She begins with an anecdote. She says, Peter Volandis has a story about the time he went to Royal Ascot. The Australian Racing Supremo wore a borrowed top hat, which unfortunately was too big. When I stuck it on my head, it kept going down past my ears. He says, Gay Waterhouse, one of our champions, champion trainers saw me having trouble with the hat so she came over according to Volandis, waterhouse definitely folded a newspaper page into a strip and used it to pad the inside circumference this worked a treat the hat fitted beautifully only problem when i took it off i had the word crisis on my forehead he laughs no i'm kidding about that 
But I mean, it's such a clever anecdotal lead. It's almost like a, if the cap fits, wear it. But the cap doesn't quite fit this guy because he's such a different character in this sort of racing industry, which thinks of itself as a bit of an aristocracy almost. And as you said, he's this Sydney spiv who's come in to shake things up. Is it important to get such a... I know we go different places through the story, as we said, but such a strong description early on of, of this guy. She also describes him as being like a character from one of the Godfather movies. <laughs> it's, it's so relatable. Um, I think everyone would know what you're talking about if, if you say that. Yeah, I, I guess my question is a description like that up top, is it important to get that right, right high up in the piece? It is really crucial. And in a long form piece, like in Good Weekend, it tends to be colourful like that. So it takes the reader instantly to a place, to an example that then says something kind of emblematic or indicative of the person or the issue. Yeah, so that that's really fairly common in, in a long-form piece is to set the scene, set a place where something happened or where someone did something or and then use that to kind of then come into a kind of a number, a few pars down, which mm-hmm. that says something crucial to what you're, you're going to be saying and what the reader's going to get to when they go through the rest of the piece. It's, it's an amazing um, piece just in terms of what has unfolded in the nine months or so since. It says, um, she's written here, more than a mere administrator, he is a mover and shaker and his influence extends across state borders. I mean, she could be talking about what he's done in the NRL in the last two months. It's, it's amazing. And that's right. He wasn't, I don't think he was chair of the NRL. Yeah, I think was like he was just right around there, about right? to be chair of the NRL yeah. at that time. So yeah, that story was all about racing. Mm. And yeah, this year it's been all about NRL <laughs> with, with Peter Vlandy. So yeah, that, that's just turned out coincidentally. Well, actually, I think I'm pretty sure that we knew he was going to be chair at that time, yeah, yeah. but it just, maybe it was just about to happen or had just happened. I'm not sure which. Because the other thing um, which we spoke about briefly earlier was um, the rugby league, <laughs> the way he terms it rugby league, which Jane picked up on and has since been picked up on very widely and, and become a bit of a source of amusement to some. But um, yeah, she, she kind of honed in on it cleverly. Yeah. And that's, that again is like the art of a really great feature writer is observing things and then commenting on them. And it's tricky, isn't it? Because you could observe that and comment on it and sound really condescending and snobbish, or Mm. you can observe it and not sound condescending and snobbish and just, just make it part of what you've observed about this person. But it says a lot, right? It says, it says a lot about him. And yeah, it's funny. I've I've heard some um, um, radio sports journalists talking about NRL and Blandis and they, they were saying rugby league. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thought, wow, I wonder if they got that from Jane's story. It, it's kind of, and I think he's adapted it himself now and adopted it himself now as his kind of, um, you know, his little he's, thing. he's proud of it. It says yeah. something about him and, and yeah. he doesn't care if that's not how other people say it. So yeah, that's really key. I think his observation in, a long form piece is, mm. you know, what's someone wearing? What cufflinks have they got on? Mm. What, what, what's, how do they raise their eyebrows? Do they look nervous? What kind mm. of shoes do they have? It's, it's really important to get that kind of texture and color from your own eyes as well as from, so it's, it's, it's as much about that as it is about what they say. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. And yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, just up on this sort of first, I don't know, first 10 pars, even earlier, perhaps she quotes across two pars, four different people. And to emphasize your point earlier that it's neither a, a takedown nor a puff piece at, at one point, one of the quotes is he has tipped the industry on its head. Uh, another quote is in my opinion, there's never been a pow- more powerful man in Australian racing, but then in the next bar, he's a silly little man making silly decisions <laughs> and um, people are frightened of him. And I mean, that's four different people she's gotten. So I guess that alone shows how much work has gone into this. And, you know, even if she's only gotten one line from one person, if it's a silly little man making silly decisions then that's worth the effort, right? Oh yeah. And Jane would have spoken to, you know, dozens of people for, mm-hmm. for that story. And probably a lot of them don't end up getting quoted. Okay. I think that's one of the other rules of long form journalism is you need to talk to way more people than you actually quote. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to feel that you have to include someone just because you spoke to them. What, what you're doing is gathering as much information as you can. So that you can have a really great 360 degree kind of feel of a person and then you're just going to cherry pick out of all those conversations the bits that fit what you're you know the construction that you're writing rather than whereas I think when you when you're more kind of mainstream news reporting you kind of put in what people say and you're not kind of contextualizing it or giving it as much analysis as as you do Mm. in this kind of way. So yeah. yeah, that's that. People are always amazed, actually, when I tell them that you know I can take our writers a month to do a piece, mm. you know, and that's working solidly on it. So there's a lot of work goes into each piece. And I think 360 degree feel was a good way to put it. Jane captures that so well throughout this this story. She, even just um, little interactions um, where she's speaking with him and she relays them in the piece. So she says here. During our conversation, which is conducted at such breakneck pace that all I can do is that it is all I can do to keep up. He takes a call from his bank. I've got one minute for you, he says briskly into the phone. After a rapid fire exchange, he thanks the bank officer for her helping organize the finances and reminds her about her invitation to an upcoming racing New South Wales lunch in the director's room at Royal Ramwick. Her partner is welcome too, he says. And if you want to bring another couple, just let me know. Now, that's not necessarily germane to the narrative, or, but it's, it's gold, that stuff, right? I mean, can you explain to, to young writers why these observations are, are critical to a, to a broader long-form piece? Yeah, I mean, that's really how he works, right? He, mm. He's very good at massaging people. He's very good at bringing people into his tent. He's, he's doing it with his bank manager. So it is actually germane to the central point of the story, which is, how he how he kind of manages people and relationships and his ability to manage relationships is part of why he's done so well so yes it's not directly on topic but actually it says something pretty crucial to the personality that he is and also he's very adept at the media if he didn't want that hurt, he wouldn't have answered mm. the phone mm. when she was in the room. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a good point. And, and it's, it's a good lesson, I reckon, for if you're interviewing someone and they take a phone call, you don't have to switch off. I mean, that, if it's, on the, it's on the record. He, as you said, he very well knows that there's a journalist sitting across from him. If he didn't want it hurt, he wouldn't answer the phone. Yeah, that's right. And, and it is those observations, as I said earlier, that, that make a piece. Mm. Um, they're good, they're bad, they're whatever they are. 
that and that's why for for a good weekend profile you know you can't do it on the phone you don't just have a one hour sit down interview with someone you need to go Mm. and do something for color and observation you probably need two or three interviews and then you might need a follow-up you know five phone calls to double check 200 facts or something so Mm. there is a lot of um a lot of different bits that you need it's not a straight interview and i think a lot of people don't really understand that particularly if they're pitching stories to us from the outside either Mm -hmm. pr or even some freelancers you just don't get the kind of story that we run from sitting in an office with someone and turning your tape recorder on and Mm -hmm. them answering questions and then you go away you need much more than that to, Mm -hmm. to paint that fuller picture of who the person is and um Jane just seems to be an expert at, at that. I mean, she's used that so cleverly there. Is that what part of why you love this piece? I mean, you picked this um, as one of your two pieces to, to discuss. Were those sort of uh, little interactions part of what you enjoy about her as a writer? Yeah, I mean, I just love Jane. She's an absolute master of the craft. And there's always humour in her pieces mm. too. And Tim as well, the other piece that I picked. That, yeah. And they're very different in the way they write and in their humour. But with Jane, you're always going to have a little right chuckle or, and it will be from observations. And she'll always have that context really, you know, that broad context that the person sits in or that the issue sits in. She's probably, yeah, I'd say profiles, she's just, fantastic at mm. she really does get all those observations and she, yeah and she'll make all the calls that that are needed way more than perhaps a lot of other people would expect and yeah she just pulls it together so beautifully that yeah you always have a little laugh i think that's important too you know not at the person's expense necessarily just just she's and that's that's the intelligence of a writer i think really good long form writers are they're analysing as well as reporting. In fact, they're not really just reporting at all. So that's that's her intelligence coming through will be noting things that, you know, perhaps someone else wouldn't note and, and noting why those things matter mm. and what they say about the person. Yeah, she ties it in so well to the broader it's, it's con, uh, themes in her story. Like even where she says... Um, She's talking about the extravagant length of Volandi's trousers. So much material is bunched around his ankles that you could be forgiven for thinking he picked up the wrong pair from the dry cleaner. But I mean, she's not having a dig at him because then she explains that, you know, in the racing world where sartorial style matters, Volandi's is known for his almost permanently rumpled appearance. A leading sports writer last year had a good natured dig at him for wearing $200 suits, ill-fitting shirts and cheap tyres. When I mention the article, Volandi's adopts a mildly aggrieved tone. They're definitely not $200 suits, I can guarantee you that. I do get them on sale, I don't deny it, but they're pretty decent suits, so he got that one wrong. So, I mean, it's mm. again, you know, painting this guy as he, he's the outsider in, in this industry, isn't it? And it's just so cleverly done. That's right. And she also talks about his height, I think, just mm. around that same yeah. area. She says that he's quite short and he tells her what height he is and she raises her eyebrow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, she doesn't believe him. And um, <laughs> he's, he's added a few centimetres to what she thinks he looks like. Don't and again, it's, it's, that, um, it's that fine line between being condescending and actually just, just being cleverly amusing about mm. someone's height. and. Yeah, I, I think she does that so well. And, and the crumpledness. That's yeah, yeah. 
Tim Elliott, um, who wrote the lawn bowls piece that we're going to chat about later. I, I've sort of noted that as well in his piece, like that story, as we'll, we'll discuss, could just venture into the absolute ridiculous, but he does so well to, to hang in there. And he, he just paints this mildly amused, mildly bemused, I guess, line the whole way through, but he, he doesn't take the piss, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm. exactly. Mm. It's, it's a fine line. Yeah, exactly. These guys are so good at it. It's, um, it's great to read. Now, there's a section here. Um, yeah, so Jane's, Jane's written about um, by the time he gained acceptance on the football field, he was a young footy player. Volandis was a hardened playground brawler ready to take on anyone who slighted him. I don't think I'm like that now, he says. I've mellowed a lot. And then she says, but those who deal with him say he still has a highly combative personality. In meetings, if he doesn't like what's being said, he'll just talk over the top of people, says one person. He's a classic bullied kid who became a bully. Now, I mean, obviously, Volandis has a thick, pretty thick skin, so I'm sure this that well, perhaps doesn't bother him. Maybe it does. But essentially, Jane can't allow that to, you know, influence her writing. She Is there a balance you have to strike in that way or is it simply about just being truthful? Oh, I think it's about being truthful. I mean, you're not writing a profile for the person. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have to be legally okay. Mm-hmm. And so that can be tricky. But, yeah, you're not writing it with a view to whether they like you or not. I, yeah. I think if you have that in mind, you're kind of going to fail at the job. I mean, I think I don't think he minded the piece, mm-hmm. um, but that's because she got that balance and nuance mm-hmm. right. But, but. I think that's also because he's a he's a fairly thick-skinned guy, right? Because mm. he's used to dealing in this world. You know, someone else might have hated it if they were a bit more thin-skinned. Mm. So, yeah, I don't think she. I think fairness is what you keep in mind that you've mm. got to be fair, that you've got to try and see it from that person's side as well as the side of the people who perhaps don't like them or have criticisms of them. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm very keen on fairness and giving all sides but our writers are too so that's not hard that they, they do that naturally but but I think it's more about fairness than whether they like it or not because if, you, if you're worried about whether they like it or not it's going to come through in the piece yeah yeah and that's when you start leaning towards puff piece territory like you mentioned earlier yeah exactly yeah Later on in the piece, she, she says, on a recent Saturday, I find myself sitting next to Volandis at a sumptuously laid table in a glass-fronted room overlooking the winning post at Royal Randwick. Now, is there any um, discussion between you guys around, Jay, around Jane placing herself in the story? I mean, she does it throughout the story, but it's so um, surreptitiously done. It, it just seems to work. I mean, is do you guys discuss whether she's going to go first person or, yeah, do you just leave that to her? No, I would leave that to the writers. I mean, most school weekend kind of pieces, you would have that because you're with the person, not most, some, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not that uncommon actually that Mm -hmm. you would have yourself there if you are shadowing someone doing something. So that, yeah, that's really just the writer's way of working out. They, I mean, they don't kind of do it unless they need to. Like mm. I'd say if Jane's done it through that piece, she's probably needed to to be able to kind of say where they are and what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there's certainly no rule against it the way there is in, in more mainstream reporting roles. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I guess in this situation, it makes sense that she's done it because again, it, it speaks to the broader um, point that she's making is that he's holding these lavish events. She's sitting next to another journalist. So these are all the people Volandis has invited and she's just another. Yeah. She kind of couldn't put us, she couldn't not put herself yeah. there in that context. Mm. <laughs> There's a line he says at, at this function, um, it, News comes through that the American superstar Taylor Swift <laughs> slated to sing at the Melbourne Cup has cancelled her appearance. Taylor Swift is a late scratching, Volandis announces, all but pumping his fist in the air. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a very good example of um, Jane's dry, subtle little uh, pieces of humour along the way. But exactly. Yeah, I, like basically she's saying, you know, he, he, he might have pretended that he was unhappy, but he was actually thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, within with that one little sentence, without actually saying that at all. Now, um, midway through the story, there's a section um, that's bracketed. It's about three pars or two two reasonably long pars. Where it comes, it became apparent on Thursday night, weeks after this conversation, a shocking report on the ABC program, seven thirty, alleged thousands of registered racehorses were being killed in Australian slaughterhouses in contravention of racing rules, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And on it goes for a couple of pars. Now, is that, uh, how did that one unfold, Katrina? Was that just a, oh, shit, we better put something in here because this is a serious issue and it's, it's all happened after, I'm assuming this story is close to going to print. It went to print without that. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. what, yeah, that, that, um, that would have been written through the story if it had been in part. And, you know, these stories, just as an example, Jane would have filed that three or four weeks before it comes out, it goes, mm-hmm. so then we're in production two weeks before we actually finalise it and send it to print the Friday a week before it goes to print and on the Monday after we sent to print, so we send to print on the Friday, on the Monday was the four, was it four corners or 7.30? I can't remember which it was, but that was on that Monday night, I think. And so we were, we're kind of in this black hole period mm. where we've gone to print but we're not out yet. And so we, and this does happen on occasion. That's not as um, irregular as you would like it to be. That something happens in that that week in in between. Well, so I guess yeah, you're trying we, to deal with topical people and exactly. um, subjects. Yeah, that's right. So that's normally our solution is we go, well, we can actually fix the online story, and mm-hmm. we can't rewrite it because you want the online story to reflect the print versions mm. so you're not going to go and completely redo it but so that's that's how that came about was all well, we need to put this in here later on in the piece um jane talks she's sort of going through his chronology a little bit here and she says um by 97 when he appeared in a film australia documentary the gamblers Philandis had not only stamped his authority authority at harold park but learnt to deploy drollery to charm and disarm in one scene at a business meeting with people from outside the industry, he mentions the name of a champion trotter, Heraclus. The others at the table look blank. Heraclus, he, rep- he repeats with a glint in his eye. It's named after me, a Greek god. Now, she's, <laughs> it's, it's one line, um, but again, she's sort of trying to give as much of uh, Volandi's character as she can to, to the reader. Um, she's gone back and watched a 23-year-old documentary. Yeah. Uh, is this the kind of research that, you know, young readers, young writers, sorry, should, should be expected to do? I mean, you mentioned Jane's an absolute master. I guess there's nothing better than, than learning from the best. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think if you do want to do anything long form, 
people who haven't done it are always surprised. I mean, we do, you know, sometimes reporters in the newsroom want to write a piece for Good Weekend because they've been covering an issue and they're always a bit surprised at how much work goes into a Good Weekend piece. So, yeah, I'd never underestimate how much more work than you expected you will have to do for that kind of piece. Just a technical point later later in the piece, there's um, quotes from um, two guys, Max Presnell and James Mathers. They're both mentioned earlier in the story, but Jane or, or yourself as editor has reintroduced them by their full name instead of just calling them by their surname. Is is that just because it's so far along in the piece that you need to re-familiarise it? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's just our kind of standard mm-hmm. rule, really. If If you've mention someone and then it's a bit further along you don't want the reader to have to go back and like who who's jones again i need yep. to go back and find out who he was so mm-hmm. yeah we 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 do that in all features so the writers know that that's the so you know i don't have to add that in generally but okay. they send it with that they know Just, the format really yeah and a bit of a gut feel because i guess there's been 20 names mentioned in between there and yeah exactly been, yeah and also i guess if it's and often in that, if it has been a while, we'll also remind readers of who they are, you know, mm-hmm. like racing writer mm-hmm. or even though we've introduced them two pages back as racing writer, Max Presnell or something, we mm-hmm. might just remind them who is Max again. Um, then again, later in the piece, um, Jane makes a point that Volandi seems to have an unhealthy influence over News Corp newspapers who obviously are a rival. So she goes, she speaks to Paul Whitaker, who was the Daily Telegraph editor at the time she's talking about. Is that something that you guys are keen to get in there? You know, that he just categorically denies that the paper's editorial independence was compromised in any way. So, I mean, it, it's not a huge um, line from him or anything, but is that something you think, okay, that's fair and reasonable. We should get a line from Paul Whitaker on this? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think if you're criticizing someone or if people are saying something that's rumor based about someone else or another organization, it doesn't matter if it's within journalism or anywhere, you know, that's just basic journalism that you would go and put it to them and give them a chance. And that's the fairness that we talked about before, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you need to give them a chance to say that's not right. Yep. Yep, makes sense. And just closing out on this piece, um, <laughs> there's some just some fantastic detail I wanted to point out that um, she says uh, she's talking about Valandi's running the racing New South Wales head office like a strapped for cash charity operating out of a church basement. The stationary cupboard is monitored. If you want to make a colour photocopy as opposed to black and white, you need permission from your manager. Within the CBD, there's no catching cabs. To get to a meeting, you go on foot. I lead by example, Volandi says cheerfully. If it's a 25-minute walk, so be it. It's it's terrific uh, detail. This is just, I assume, the product of Jane's many interviews? Yeah, that's right. And and just going off on tangents with him, I think she also says that he vacuums his own yeah. office because <laughs> he's worried about having someone in there with all the sensitive information. And, yeah, that was just gold. It's like, oh, my God, how did you find that out? <laughs> And and also that's her having built up a rapport with him. So, mm-hmm. you know, she's had enough time with him that, you know, and, and Jane's a very engaging person. So, you know, she's probably gone off on a tangent on, you know, the station we covered because she noticed it was locked or, you know, it'd be something like that. And then, you know, he was also 
to be fair to him, he was a great subject because he was very open, mm, you know, like yeah. he, he was happy to tell her that he vacuumed and that <laughs> yeah. he caught the, you know, walked Walks places. around the and, CBD, yeah. You know, the, the worst subjects are the ones who, who think that they have to be so guarded and not tell you anything because mm. what, what they never realise is that that makes them just look really boring. So he was, he was gold from a subject point of view as well because he was, you know, he know as I said before, he knows the game, he knows how to play it, and he's also a character. You know, mm. he's he's a he's a colourful personality, and he doesn't mind people seeing that. Yeah, absolutely. Which is interesting, I, I guess. Um, Jane or, or yourself again, as editor, decide to um, save probably one of the strongest positive character references right for the end. Um, Chris Waller, one of the champion racehorse trainers says he's a very good person i know from my own experience he's checked on my welfare and well-being at different times there are very few people who knock on the door and say how are things going so why why leave that reference to the end why why leave that um yeah positive endorsement of his character to the end is there a reason no i don't think so i think Mm -hmm. probably the end i can't actually remember all the detail of the end but that was probably a kind of you know, she, as I said before, that, that there's an arc to these stories. Mm. So she's moving the reader through various issues that he's dealt with, various parts of his life, various, you know, like there's, there's the bit about his childhood, there's the bit about the um, shit fight with Victoria, mm. there's the bit about rugby league. So that's, I guess, a, I would imagine that's not so much left to the end as a part of a summing up. Yeah, you're right. Kind of, because, um, um, section, which is which is not so much left to the end as just part of the structure that you don't yeah. just end on the, you know, you kind of have to come back to somehow pulling it all together in your last mm. little bit. So I would imagine that's why he's there. Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense because she then says in the very final part of the story that Volandis makes it makes clear that he is fond of Waller because, like him, the leading trainer started from scratch. When he first came to Australia from New Zealand, he had 20 cents in his pocket. And then she effectively says, and look at them both now. Philandis remembers being a small boy standing in the front yard of his family's firebreak cottage in Wollongong, watching the world go by. Sometimes I think to myself, am I still the same person? It's weird how life treats you. And that's the end. So, yeah, she's tied it in beautifully there, as you'd expect. Um, yeah, yeah, she's used she's used Waller to really come back to Philandis. Mm. So it's not, it, that's what it's there for, I would mm. say. Yeah, really um, cleverly done. Um, and now, uh, Katrina, we will head over to the Tim Elliott story, uh, which was, <laughs> you had me in from the, um, you sent me these stories a, a little while ago and you had me in from the headline on this one, um, bun fight at the bolo, how one woman got banned <laughs> from the greens. Now, we love an alliteration. <laughs> <laughs> and this is an amazing story. I mean, it went all the way to the Queensland Supreme court. It had a bit of the castle about it. I thought. Um, this quarrel um, but I thought this was maybe representative of part of your vision for Good Weekend in terms of um, the pieces it'll be prepared to write this seemed struck me as a real everyman type piece that's right and actually to be honest when Tim first suggested it I was a bit dubious Mm -hmm. Um, he'd read about it he said said this case had gone to the high court or not the high court the Supreme Court and um, you know, I was kind of, oh, yeah, you know, because we'd have to send him up to Nambour and, you know, like it was going to involve some costs. And, but he kind of convinced me and 
what we kind of, when we talked about it, it was that it's not, it's writ, it's Australia writ large, you know, mm. like it, mm. it's, it's the reason why, and we, and actually once he'd been there and he came back and was writing it as often happens, he kind of started to think, you know, there's always a wobbly bit midway through the process where like, why am I writing this? Why should people care about this? And it's because Namble could be anywhere, really. It could be any mm. tennis club or bowls club or book club or school or, you know, it could, it, it's the fights that people had there are kind of about humans and how humans interact and the petty things that we squabble over and yes. how those squabbles can become legal cases. So that's that. And that, that was kind of important to get in there. Like you're telling this story, but this story is telling a, a broader story about society and human beings and psychology really. So that's why it was interesting, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I was, um, I was, I was fascinated from the get go, even though I was probably like you were thinking, you know, in those first few parts, where is this going? Essentially for for the listeners, it's about a bust up between old friends at lawn bowls. And um, like we touched on earlier, when we were talking about inserting humor into a story, Tim's done that brilliantly throughout this. But yeah, I, I assume that was part of what you enjoyed about it. It certainly was what I enjoyed about it. Some of the cleverness of his writing, but um, I'll just, the second part here, he says, not long after the players took the greens and he's reflecting on where this bust up started, three club volunteers, June Robson, Judy Silwood and Robin Perrin, such great lawn bowls names, <laughs> busied themselves in the upstairs kitchen, chopping tomatoes, opening up and draining tins of beetroot, cutting up quiches and dressing coleslaw. The women were friends, but June and Robin were particularly close, which is funny given how different they were. June was gentle and well-liked. Robin, who was ladies' assistant secretary at the time, was more assertive, even a little domineering. Some of the women found her egotistical. Nothing was ever good enough for Robin, one woman tells me. She was always criticising people's work and putting other people down. So, I mean, you need a big piece. I, I feel like you need a lot of room to set the scene for this one. Yeah, that's right. And, and it is all that detail that puts the person in the room mm. with, with the, and the, describes who they are yeah, yeah. that's right and, and like you said before it's it's australia writ large because you can always picture june and judy and robin in the kitchen like we've all seen that scene yeah that's right and the bolo is in every country town yep. you know there's a bolo and it's kind of you know it's it's a centerpiece often mm. Mm. particularly for for older people so yeah it it's crucial to set the scene by actually going there, which Tim did. And he spent mm. a couple of days there and that's part of the, I guess, the bigger picture, isn't it? The, what does a bolo mean to Australia? Well, a bolo is small town Australia in a way, isn't it? Exactly. And then Tim nails it sort of, um, what are we a fifth of the way? And he says, he's talking about it, that incident and, and the way it escalated. And he says, what everyone does agree on is that this was the point of no return for Robin Perrin and the Nambour Bowls Club. In a little more than a year's time, she would be barred from the club, prevented from even setting foot on the premises. Robin was indignant, no incandescent, as was her husband, Nev, a 20-year-old veteran of the club and a past men's president. Robin appealed to the Sunshine Coast District Ladies Bowls Association, and then on and on and on, but no one would help. She then went to her lawyer, who told her the only remaining option was to go to court, the Supreme Court of Queensland. So that's exactly what she did. And I mean, their parents then, are, it's 
you know, she says there have been Perrins in this area since the 1870s. So as, as trivial as it seems, the stakes are high for, for these people in a, in a strange kind of way. Um, I felt like Tim was really good at getting that across as well, that we, we start to have some sympathy for the Perrins. Yeah, that's right. And the context is everything, you know, like, mm. but yeah, to them, this is, and everyone's family has its own history and everyone has pride in their family's history in one way or another. Mm. And I think he captured that really well. Like this is, yeah, this is our place. This is where we're from. And, and that's, that's partly why it mattered, not just the bowls club of today, but what it meant for their family name. Mm, mm. And then he, he talks about the bolo further on. He says such the singular fondness that most Australians feel for their suburban bolo enduring and unpretentious. The bolo has become an Australian institution, a reliable social leveler and small town staple that has about it a certain inevitability somewhere at some stage, each of us will end up in a country bolo drinking house white by the glass and eating a seafood basket. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So perfect. It's, it's excellent. It takes you there, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it think, does. Oh, I want to go. I want to go to one now. <laughs> We've, um, we'll put this story up so um, people can have a read and I, I really recommend it. But um, yeah, as I said earlier, I guess there is a sense of the ridiculous to all this. Did you guys have to be really careful about cultivating the way that was presented by Tim and, and in the editing? Yeah, I mean, like Jane, Tim is a master at it, so it wasn't he. The, it didn't require any major restructure or massive rewrite or anything. But but yes, and exactly the same as what I said about Blandies. You don't want to ridicule. You want to observe and paint a picture mm. and people can decide for themselves, you know, what they think of that picture. And that was really important to all of us, to Tim and myself and, you know, everyone involved in the production of it was not to, not to be, you know, big city folks looking down your nose at, you know, this pathetic little bun fight because mm. this could be happening at anything that you're, you know, your school, you know, look at, you know, Big Little Lies, yeah. for example, yeah. is about a, you know, a upmarket it's a, it's Sydney. Same, yeah, yeah it's the same kind of thing. isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. So, so you're actually saying that this is what we can all succumb to, actually. He says, um, he, he describes one, uh, one incident, uh, the details of which are long and extremely boring. But then, <laughs> but then he says, um, they might be full of pensioners and tea cosy knitting marmalade makers, but the way Jeff tells it, the average bowls club is a pit of vipers, bullying, backbiting, white ending, falling outs are uncommonly common. There are personality clashes, etiquette breaches, temper tantrums. If they're not picked in the club's top team, some men, and it's always the men, will simply up and leave the club around the corner. Then there are the ladies. There's always a lot of bitchiness, Jeff says. You see that, these old girls who have been running the show, and on it goes, and then he leans in close. He says, you'll notice there are no younger women members at the club. They're always made, made to feel uncomfortable, and they leave. And then in brackets, the club denies this. He also, what he does well throughout this piece is remind us that it was taken to court. He, he says... Um, as stated in, in court or according to Robin's affidavit, is that a deliberate technique to just remind us, okay, hang on a minute, this really was going through the courts? 
Um, no, I think that was more about the legalities. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember, but, um, but yeah, all those little bits in brackets are mm. really about that fairness that I talked about and the, and, and making sure it was okay yep. with our lawyers, which is, you know, blah, because you, you don't want to leave out, you know, blah, blah, said this ridiculous thing about someone mm. because it's, it's part of the color and the fun of it, mm. but you actually can't not be able to also have, well, what do they say in return? Yeah. So Tim's very good at just put it in brackets and move on. Yeah. They've had their say. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, some of those bits want to say it's in an affidavit actually just, yes, it reminds people that went to court, but it also reminds you, this isn't, well, it is still hearsay, but you know, this, this is hearsay that someone was confident enough to say in a court of law, mm, mm. as opposed to, just what they said to Tim over a beer mm. at the bolo, you know? So I guess it just, it kind of underlines that whoever's saying it really meant it and believes it because they put it in an affidavit. Yeah. And it just gave me pause each time. It was like, gee whiz, this thing really, really went all the way. <laughs> uh, unbelievable. Well, the things that they made affidavits about too. <laughs> yeah. Wow, you know? yeah. <laughs> she um, said, he said. You know. He's cleverly managed to, convey sympathy for for robin who i guess is the protagonist or you know some may view her as the anti-hero of this story um he writes uh, uh robin is sitting uh, looking uncharacteristically emotional what really got to her was that most of the women who voted against her had been friends she and nev had known some of them for decades had had them over for drinks for dinners they had house sat for them gone camping with them when the robsons moved to nambour the pe- in 2014, the parents took them under their wing. Robin and June went down to Brisbane to see the ballet. She and Nev had even had June and Dave over on Christmas Day. And then it had gotten to the point where these guys couldn't even see each other in the street. They were avoiding each other in the grocery stores. And and she uh, she is quoted here saying the whole thing was so humiliating. I mean, it's it's a sad story. That there's a lot of layers to this. It's it's a quite a remarkable read. Yeah, and and it does remind you that when these things happen, they're human beings, Mm. you know, there are human beings whose feelings are hurt or offended. Yeah. And I think he captured that really well. And again, you know, Robin was open with him. So he was able to capture it because she didn't clam up and pretend that she wasn't hurt at all. Mm. So, and that's, you know, that is the skill as well of getting Mm. people to open up. I mean, they don't just choose to open up. It's, that's also the skill of a really good journalist to, get people comfortable and, yeah. you know, get them to, to tell you things and to give you a sense of how they, you know, ask the right questions and you'll get more from them. So Katrina, I assume you, um, you obviously backed Tim here because you, you know, he's a good writer, but more than that, there's not a famous name. It's not a famous issue, like a well-known issue. There's nothing here that, that would jump out other than, you know, a clever headline and, some might say a, a 200 word, which is a 200 word news yarn, which is where I think you said Tim picked it up from in the first place. But he is that um, speaks to what, what you want to make good weekend um, in, in terms of an Australian magazine that that kind of does discuss issues that we almost don't realize are important in our own little lives. Yeah, I think that's right. And no, I didn't know. I mean, that wasn't one where I thought, yes, that's definitely a cover story. Mm-hmm. That was a, in fact, it, 
I probably thought it definitely wasn't a cover story until he filed it and everyone who read it in the office just loved it and laughed <laughs> and, and, you know, and so it ended up on the cover. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, our designer had a great time because we, we decided we wanted a really kind of bolo picture. We didn't want yep. the people from there. We just wanted a kind of quintessential bolo. And he's so clever, he went and found a little bowl of salad and put the little picture of this little bowl of salad on the green um, just, it's kind of that kind of subtle humor, which is a bit, you know, reflecting what Tim, the, the subtlety of how Tim and sophistication of how Tim mm. did the story was the same. So if you looked at the cover, you, you just would have seen a bowling green with some people on and some balls. But if you look more closely, you see this little plate of <laughs> turned over salad. Um, so we, we got a lot of amusement out of that too. But yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't think you should always have stories on famous people on the covers. I think it's equally compelling sometimes if they're average everyday Australians who are dealing with issues. And um, you make an interesting point there about the photography and uh, I know in, in magazine land um, photography and, and online, of course, um, photography is such an important element. Um, is that something you guys spend some considerable time on? Oh, definitely. We have a picture editor mm-hmm. whose whole job is booking shoots and we always try and photograph people ourselves if we can. Even if there are good photos of them around, we'll try and take our own. And when we can't, and even when we do, we normally need a lot of you know, smaller pictures that say something about the story. So, so we'll find them. And yeah, the, the pictures are very, very important. We have fantastic photographers on staff and fantastic, really great freelancers who, who specialize in magazine work who we use. And yeah, that's, that's a very, very important part of, of any magazine and our magazine in particular, the layout, the design and the photography are kind of hallmarks as well. Yeah, as the for sure. Yeah, the, the Volandis photo, the, the main photo on the Volandis story, a black and white image of him sort of staring off into the distance holding a pair of binoculars. I thought it was a, such a striking image. Yes, and I think, I can't remember, but I think we might have put a little horse in the binoculars on the cover. Okay. We might not okay. have actually. We might have tried that and decided it didn't work. But, yeah, yeah right. we do try various things. Like, no, that's right. We put the heading in the binoculars. Okay. On, I think it was eye on the prize on the print version. Mm-hmm. And so we put those words on the cover, you know, in the round circles of the binoculars. Mm. And again, that was, that's a classic kind of, of a good weekend style of photo. Like you couldn't even see most of his face. You just saw the mm. big binoculars, but you, you saw his jaw beneath them. Yeah, right. And that's much more compelling as a cover mm. than, you know, just his face without the binoculars. So yeah. props and angles and, you know, light and shade and those kind of things where we're really after photos that that are going to catch the eye and that are really striking and that sum up the story rather than, you know, oh, but we need to see his face, for example. Yeah. Um, he's even got a slightly rumpled suit on, I reckon. So uh, you, you <laughs> nailed, nailed that. Um, before I let you go, Katrina, I, uh, I just wanted to uh, say thank you very much for coming on the show, but I need to leave you with a, uh, our regular hypothetical, which is um, if you can could interview anyone and write about them, dead or alive, uh, you've got a long 
form piece waiting to be written on this person, who would it be? I know I thought a lot about this and I came up with a lot of people, but then my ultimate was we would have to be Howard Holt, wouldn't it? Where did <laughs> <Yeah>. he go? <laughs> Where'd you end up? That's a nice one. <laughs> what happened? Why were you on that beach? And where, where did you go when you went into that water? <laughs> I love it. All we right, can well, find him in Bermuda or somewhere and bring him <laughs> back for an exclusive. I'd, I'd definitely want that. It'd be a hell of an exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> Katrina, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Adam. It's been fun. <laughs>